All right. The chapter this time, the first chapter we're dealing with tonight is um, my interrupted flight to the Himalayas. And I was uh, reflecting when I, last week when we talked at such length about the whole uh, sort of general approach of Yogananda's life and how it's this transition from Kali Yuga into Dwapara Yuga and creating for us a new model of spiritual life. Last week I was talking a lot about the emphasis that Master puts on the ideal um, householder lifestyle of his parents and the emphasis that he puts on us, on it, and how uh, not accidental that is. And yet you have this other theme that runs through Yogananda's life, which is very interesting. You don't exactly know where to put it. Of course he um, was completely aware of the direction his life would take, but as we talked about it last week when Lucia asked the question of sort of how do you understand an avatar, he still plays out this delusion of just being a young man and not quite knowing his direction and when will I ever meet my guru. And he also talks in that early chapter about the memories that he had of his life as a yogi in the Himalayas and the, uh, the comfortableness of that and how those lives kept coming back to him when he was a baby and he had to sort of sort his way out to figure out where he really was and what he was really supposed to be doing. Um, it's interesting, I'm going to skip way ahead, when in 1936, 35, when Yogananda had been established in America for 15 years and then felt the inward call from Sri Yukteswar to come back to India and he went back to India for that year, year and a half, whatever it was, um, when he left America, there was no certainty at all that he was going to return. Um, perhaps maybe in his innermost self he knew that he would, but he made arrangements as if he might never come back. And in his own heart, he didn't necessarily know if he would. It depended on what Divine Mother told him. And in fact, in certain letters that he wrote to Rajasi from India during that period of time, he also stated that if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't come back. That it's your pure love and devotion that's drawing me back. Now, Master expressed himself extremely extravagantly, especially to Rajasi. But nonetheless, he just made that very just direct statement that that's what drew him back. Um, he often lamented about the um, burden of having to run an organization and uh, what it was like in America where, where in India, the disciples automatically support the guru. In America, the guru had to generate all the money to support the disciples. And uh, just the whole um, uh, everythingness about living in this culture and, as opposed to the Indian one. But even more, in his youth, you see this um, impulse within him to run away and be a solitary hermit. And it's, it's sort of an interesting, just lila is the only word for it, which the word which means divine play, because in fact he was destined to sacrifice his whole life, really, to help others. But his interest in it, you could see, was only out of responsibility, not out of an, an inner calling of his own. Even later in the chapter, in my years in my master's hermitage, when Sri Yukteswar tells him, you know, you've trained enough, now you have to do something. And Yogananda's impulse really was, really, why? Why would I have to, you know, make, any, make an organization or do something? And Sri Yukteswar said, well, the organization is the hive and devotion is the honey. And we have to 
um, provide a way to feed others. You also have to realize that the example that Yogananda had in front of him as a boy was Lahiri Mahashaya. And Lahiri Mahashaya had no organization whatsoever at all, ever. And in fact, uh, as we, we hear at the end of this chapter, uh, Yogananda's father engaged uh, Kebalananda to be his Sanskrit tutor and didn't even know that Kebalananda was also a disciple of Lahiri Mahashaya. I mean, there they were in the same town and they were acquainted with each other and they didn't know they had the same master because Lahiri Mahashaya enjoined upon his disciples silence about their spiritual life. And he, did, he wouldn't allow any advertising to be done in his name, Lahiri. He wouldn't allow any organization to be founded in his name. And he even told his disciples not to talk to one another, not to talk to anyone about what they were doing. Now, I would also add that when Yogananda came to America and started doing what he was doing, he started advertising, he started popularizing what he was teaching, he started teaching people how to laws of success and healing and various things other than the, just the straight Kriya Yoga path to God-realization. When Yogananda first came to America, he used to do healings in his public lectures. I mean, he would do miraculous healings right there. I mean, among the many reasons why he attracted thousands of people was that he would he put on a really good show. You know, he would do feats of strength. He would uh, exhibit remarkable body control, like um, stopping his heart and having two different pulses on both sides of his body and um, uh, suspending himself uh, between two chairs and being strong enough so that people couldn't push him off of it, you know, weight, put heavy weight on top of him and he could still be there, pushing people back, knocking strong men over just with a, a sort of a breath. And so he was quite uh, off the straight and narrow from the point of view of Lahiri Mahashaya or even Sri Yukteswar. And in fact, there was a bit of an uproar in India when rumors came back. It's, it's very... Um, Stories like this are important. I talked about this a little last week. You don't want to get too sanitized a version of what these, these great souls' lives were like. There was a bit of an uproar, and in fact, his guru even wrote him, Sri Teshwar even wrote him, you know, kind of like, what's this I hear? Are you really being loyal to the true teachings? And that was the answer that Yogananda gave, where he said, uh, you're the, the goldsmith and just works with the pure metal, he said, but I'm the jeweler. I have to add a little bit of this and a little bit of that you know, to make it into something that'll really sell. <laughs> and Sri uh, <laughs> Teshwar was mollified. <laughs> but from early on, Yogananda's commitment was really toward renunciation. And it helps us to understand in the Festival of Light every week, we say, greater love, no greater love can there be than this from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of mankind. Such ever has been the sacrifice of the great masters for the world. And we don't necessarily think of it, we just kind of think that they owe it to us to come or something like that. We don't really appreciate what a um, renunciation of their freedom it is for the masters to incarnate. Like, Yoganand, like Swami describes it in the past, when a master sees the personality he has to put on, it's very uncomfortable at first, like a heavy overcoat on a hot day. It kind of itches. 
And then Yogananda said, but after a while you get used to it. But in his uh, youth, and these, the, the year of my interrupted flight to the Himalayas, he must have been in his early teens, is what you can sort of estimate from it, because he met Sri Yukteswar, you know, just about the time that he'd gotten out of high school before he went to college. And so it's come soon after this. But uh, he, he still was not looking for anything except this pure sadhana. And he had this absolute determination at a very young age that he would just renounce the world. Um, in, in the Indian tradition, it's more common, although it, it's interesting how uh, maya being what it is, even in a culture that understood the value of renunciation, still there's this desire on the part of the father and the desire on the part of the son to sort of keep the, uh, the boy in the family nest. Um, once when Swami Kriyananda asked uh, Yogananda about the state of, he was asking him, who among the uh, saints and sages mentioned in autobiography was a fully liberated master. And he just mentioned just one or two. Um, and then Swami asked about Yogananda's father. And Yogananda laughed and said, oh, he was too attached to his sons. <laughs> Even with the greatness that he had spiritually, he was still attached to his sons. And at the, in the story that is told in that chapter when Ananta finally returns Mukunda, the boy Mukunda, to his father. His father speaks of, don't break my heart. Just stay here until you finish school. So it, it's a, a powerful tie. And again, one has to really respect this. Here, um, his father was a great yogi. And Master talks with great praise about the extent to which he was so simple in his tastes and how he never took any entertainment and he would just do Kriya Yoga and had few possessions and read the Gita and still he was attached to his son. You know, Eventually, of course, when Yogananda really finds his destiny, his father supports him wholeheartedly and all the more so because of the um, personal sacrifice involved. But so we have Yogananda as a young boy here and all he has in his mind, especially after his mother has left him this um, potent amulet which is it's just sort of like slipped in there this whole story of this amulet that he holds and that he meditates with and that connects him up with past lives you wonder if it was some kind of a talisman from Babaji or something like that um, because in some way it connected him with the real source of his inspiration and Babaji was really um, in fact Babaji was in fact Yogananda's guru and Sri Yukteswar was acting on behalf of Babaji because Yogananda was Krishna, was Arjuna, and Krishna was really his guru. And so often Yogananda talks about you know, what he was doing it was the will of Babaji. So in some way you wonder if that amulet didn't, because it came from, from the yogis of the Himalayas, and it acted, as they describe it, like a spiritual yeast. I love that phrase, the spiritual yeast. Often when we come back from our India pilgrimage, we explain to people because when you go on a, a very, you have a big spiritual experience, you feel so changed that you have the belief that you will be totally changed even after the experience ends. This is a recipe for great disappointment <laughs> because when uh, we resume our normal life, a lot of our old habits come back. So the image that we've always used that is very reassuring is to say it's sort of like 
a big spiritual experience like a pilgrimage or seclusion or even a profound meditation is like a little bit of radioactive material placed in the center of yourself and it begins to mutate all the cells you know but it doesn't necessarily show up right away but something has been introduced that will influence everything and it will never be the same again Yogananda describes the amulet as spiritual yeast which is a sort of similar thing once he made contact whatever that contact was through that amulet something began to awaken in him and if it was uh, which I'm just speculating if it was really a message or a talisman from Babaji who is the ever-living master in the Himalayas then his desire to leave everything and go to the Himalayas would be stronger still and so you have this wonderful sort of charming story of this boy setting up his plans and when you go to Yogananda's house in uh, Calcutta some of you have been there some of you will go there the little attic room where he would meditate the way the houses were built there would be a flat roof and often there would be a little room up on the roof and it would be the um, thank you it would be the, the puja room for the woman of the house those of you who were here last night to see Devi Van Mali um, this lovely woman from Rishikesh India who's who writes spiritual books and is traveling around. She's just the quintessential um, noble Indian woman following the traditions of India. And uh, because she was staying in her house for three days, several times a day, I think at least three times a day, she follows a whole puja ritual. And puja is a, a formal worship service. She has her whole little traveling kit with her teeny weeny images of the deities. She has about three or four of them. And, all this little um, ghee lamps and oil and just everything and because she sits on the floor in the room that she's staying there's a, a, a more formal altar set up in our house where she was staying but she took the little table where the telephone was and put a little cloth over it and put all of her little things because they're all really miniature and in the wonderful Indian style and the telephone just stayed there and then the whole little altar's all right in front of it <laughs> and uh, uh, most the the three mornings, most of the mornings, two of the mornings that she was here it, for the eight a.m. puja, I would sit next to her, and she would just do this ritual. I mean, on one hand, I'm just thrilled not to be an Indian woman anymore, just to not have to do all this. But every morning, it was just exactly the image of Master's mother. In in the in the Indian household, the um, it's very interesting, you know. Indian culture is sometimes accused of because the marriages are arranged and so on that the woman doesn't have rights but in fact the woman holds the entire household together and she especially holds it together by her spiritual by her devotion and it's the woman not the man who carries out the spiritual rituals and it's really her who who defines the household the man just relies upon her to do it and so every morning she gets up and does this elaborate ritual and prays for the whole family van mali she'd pick all these little flowers from our garden these little marigolds and others and through this whole ritual which would take about an hour she would offer these flowers a petal at a time she'd pull off the petal and lay it I mean she would do it you know more or less like that but every time we'd start I would just sort of roll my eyes and be like she's offering these a petal at a time you know we're going to be here until tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) but somehow time would pass and she just every day she'd create this beautiful little mountain and she'd lay every petal just so and she'd create this beautiful little sculpture of petals and on these little tiny deities she'd set all these little flowers you know with total devotion just chanting away the whole time 
where was I with that? But it was just... Um, uh, oh, room, the puja room, thank you. So every Indian home is built with some room because it's assumed you have the family deities and you bring the deities in. I mean, this, I'm saying all this because this was Yogananda's life. This is where he came from. It's interesting. His relatives, when you go to India, sort of act as if Yogananda was really into all these rituals. But in fact, um, he, he, when he came to America, he didn't bring any of them. And, and after we went to India, one, one of our trips, um, this kind of extravagant enthusiasm kind of develops on this pilgrimage. And we wanted to come home, and we were going to have all these pujas. And I said, Swamiji, what do you think? And he, he looked at me like this. He said, Master was a yogi like that. And I said, Sir? <laughs> he was not a Hindu, and he was not into ritual. He didn't bring any of that back. It's sort of like the equivalent of the Catholics. You know, it's about as, we're about as Hindu as we are Catholic, and he just left all that behind. But all the homes, but when he would go to India, when he grew up, and I'm sure when he went back in 1936, he didn't try to reform them. And, and I'm sure he knew it because he'd been trained by his mother. And this is my speculation. So he just let it all go on and gave everyone the impression that he was for it. But when he was free in America, he didn't bring any of that here. It would be hopeless. Um, and I can see why. It's just like goes on and on. Kriya Yoga is our puja, our true fire ceremony, offering our karma into the inner flame. But in the house, there's always a small room, and often it's on the roof or someplace like that. When Yogananda lived where he in his house at Four Garpar Road, where he was living now, um, the, this little room, which is about as big as a big closet, you know, maybe a really big closet, um, was on the roof, and he would go outside the house and onto the flat roof. In the where it's very hot there, they sleep on the roofs a lot. It's the, the roof is like an extension of the house, um, and this room was freestanding on the roof. Subsequently, they actually built another floor on the house. So now that little room is just right in the middle of the hall between one of the bedrooms and the kitchen. You just walk by and it's just right there. But they always show you the window. This is the window from which Yogananda threw his things. That's what I was just going to say. He threw his things out this window and they landed in the alley and then he ran around to pick them up. And you sort of, uh, this little space was his meditation cave where he spent many, many hours. And he, he made all these plans, you know, with these boys that he was always trying to get onto his side, who were never quite as much on his side as he was. And you, you see his just courage and determination. He's just a young teenager, but this is it. He's off. You know, he's just saying goodbye, and there's no even twinge that you pick up in there of any remorse or concern or anything. It was God alone. And part of what the illustration here is, even though he wasn't destined to be an Himalayan yogi, in fact, he renounced hearth and home even more profoundly because he left his culture and his country and really returned only briefly. You know, came to a really foreign soil. The Himalayas were familiar turf to him. You know, living the life of a wandering sannyasi was familiar to him to come to America. Um, that was a real renunciation. But nonetheless, you see here that even at that young age, nothing meant anything to him except this one-pointed desire. This is my understanding, I'm speaking from him, this was his understanding of where spiritual life could be found, and therefore that's what he was going to do. And in keeping with what we were speaking of last week, of how a master's life 
is illustrative of how we're really supposed to live. You know, at the time when most young people are imagining all the delights of growing up and all the pleasures of approaching manhood and all the freedom and so on, all that Yogananda wanted to do was to renounce everything and go run off to the Himalayas. And even on the train, as he's describing it, you know, he, he pictures the whole scene um, as, as such a thrilling scene. You know, we'll be alone in these caves and the great masters are going to teach us things and wild animals will be like pussycats and it's so charming, you know, the way he just tells these stories and then not noticing how his friends are becoming more and more nervous. But it's still, look at the remarkable courage of, of him. No thought of, of anything except just that he wanted to do it and his determination. And then he talks about how they were, of course, finally apprehended and how his young friend, he's sort of saying to his young friend, you know, let's take a moment and run away. We can still go through the jungle and we can still get to Rishikesh and we'll still run away. And then there's this wonderful line, but Amar was basking in the familial warmth. You know, Amar had a little bit of a desire, but as soon as Maya sort of started surrounding him again and offering him comfort and support and all of that. Whereas uh, Yogananda found that very same thing repellent. And it's just, it's very instructive because it's not that it's our destiny to be repelled by the natural life. I mean, I was saying last week that in a sense that's what we're supposed to do. But nonetheless, we do have this example in front of us. Whereas Amar dove back into it with comfort, Yogananda was furious that Ananta had intercepted him. How dare you intercept me? And, and far from being glad to see him, he was outraged that his plans had been stifled. Now, each of us naturally has to move in harmony and in accord with what our real karma is. And it doesn't serve us at all to try to assume a karma that's beyond us. But nor does it serve us to pretend that the truth is any different than the Masters put it. And this total sense of renunciation is what we're striving for. Not what we should force ourselves to, but what we should always keep in some part of our consciousness. Um, Some great Indian philosophers say that one of the reasons that India has always been the cradle of this kind of teaching is because they do have the Himalayas. And, and it's hard, it's, you, you never forget in India that the option is always there to go to the Himalayas, even though almost no one takes it. And Yogananda said, and many of the people who take it are just really lazy bums, he said, not saints. But nonetheless, at one point, when we were on one of our journeys to, in India, we were somewhere, where I don't recall. It was up toward the mountain and we were having a, a little breakfast outside under a canopy. And across the valley and up, you could see the high mountains. There's only, you can't see the high mountains, obviously, from everywhere in India. But the magnitude of the mountains, the Himalayas, was just so high and so exceedingly distant from the world that we were living in that, that I could profoundly appreciate how the mere uh, image of those mountains would, would always keep you just a little bit off-center from being able to accept this as, as deeply real. So I think Yogananda gives us this long story of his determination to go to the Himalayas, and even after he meets his guru, Sri Yukteswar, you know he goes off again. It's, it's really a strong call within him 
And I think he puts it in there because he wants us to appreciate that this is the longing of our own heart. And even if we live our whole lives in a perfectly ordinary way, there needs to be a piece of us that's always, if not eager, at least willing to go to the Himalayas if God should call. Or we should live our lives as if that was our true home. That's the way um, some saint put it one time. You know, we should live in this world, the Master himself said, we should live in this world as if we were just a guest and it's not our true home. Now, if that image frightens you, you don't have to dwell on it, but we can't forget it in, in any case. Um, and then they also have this remarkable story in here, remember, of the policeman talking about the sadhu whose arm he cut off? Swami just, Master just throws these things into his book so that you just, you, you don't know what to think, you know, about such a thing even being possible. And once again, it raises the bar sufficiently that uh, we really know. Then, then uh, Master talks about how at the end, uh, his father thought to help him by having Kevalananda come and be his tutor. And uh, yet Kevalananda had actually been sent by Lahiri Mahashaya in some way to nurture Yogananda's devotion. And so for the first time uh, early on, uh, maybe not for the first time, but, but Yogananda receives Kriya initiation. He learns Kriya from Kevalananda and they spend hours meditating together and even though he didn't learn much Sanskrit as he puts it he learned the diviner syntax and it has so much there's so much beautiful language in this book you know it's not merely that the ideas are profound but the language is so charming all the way through it the way he writes so um, going back to what I said last week about how the original name of this book was the Yogi Christ of India so in this chapter um, Master introduces us to two. One, by the anecdote of the policeman chopping his arm off. We sort of get this strange picture of this remarkable sadhu. And then we're introduced to Kebalananda, who is actually a, a, a very great soul, who just sort of slips in there. And, and you see the thread of Lahiri Mahashaya's concern for Yogananda just sort of being woven in there. Lahiri undoubtedly inspiring his father to send this man to help him, thinking that it'll help anchor him when in fact it just helps free him for his ultimate journey. And then Yogananda's father asks the promise of him which Yogananda makes, which is I'll stay here until I finish high school. And then later on, of course, after he graduates from high school, he, he makes his father make good on that. Now I'm going to renounce the world and go to a monastery. But it, it is interesting that Yogananda allows himself to be compelled by his father. Of course, it was destiny that he should be so, but also out of the sympathy of his heart. And it, 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 again, it's a picture. It's like Yogananda wants to renounce the world, but his father really doesn't want him to. And Ananta treats him harshly, but I'm sure his father appealed to him out of love. And then he was a bit powerless in the hands of that. Of course, he was following what he knew to be right. If it was otherwise, he would have uh, stood up to it. Later on, when his father criticizes Sri Yukteswar, um, Yogananda says, if you say one more word against, he says, human birth is something, meaning thank you for my body, but divine birth is everything. If you say one more word against my guru, I renounce you as my father forever. So it wasn't as if Yogananda was bound by sentiment in his uh, willingness to go along with his father, but he must have accepted by this point that it just wasn't going to happen. Still wasn't out of his system, though, because he tried it one more time after he went to Sri Yukteswar. 
And in that chapter, it's described as if Yogananda went away for just a little while, but in fact, Yogananda spent a whole year in the Himalayas. I don't know why he told the story like that, but Swami told us. So he ran away from his guru for a year. So when you come back into the chapter, which I'm skipping ahead a little bit, and he says, you must be angry at me, just read Peshwar, because I just dropped all my responsibilities, it must have inconvenienced you. And Sri Yukteswar answers, you know, anger arises only when desire is thwarted. I have no desire, and therefore how could I have anger? But, uh, and then he just acted as if Yogananda had, as if uh, only hours had separated them. But it was actually a full year. When Swamiji said to Swami Kriyananda, asked Yogananda, why did you stay away so long? And Master replied, I said, he said, I'm stubborn. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? Because there's a charmingly human face to the whole story, too. All right. Is there any comments or questions about that chapter before we go on to the next one? You mean a teenager? Well, not in the Indian culture. A teenage rebellion is a Western concept. In a culture like, in most Asian cultures, people are just part of their families through their whole lives and they never turn their back on it at all. So for that kind of, that kind of rebellion has only been something fostered in the West more recently. But what, but what he meant by renouncing the world is completely different. His renunciation of the world is to renounce all interests or impulses except the single impulse to realize God and everything that fosters that. So he was going to renounce home, family, name, um, like live more like Christ. I mean, Christ, Christ said, you know, even the foxes have a, a hole that they call their own, but the Son of Man has nothing. He has no place that's his own. You never really hear about Jesus going back to his own home. He just wandered around and did whatever God wanted him to do. And so the tradition in India of the sadhu is that you walk away from your family home and you change your name and you never look back. You never contact them, you never relate to them again. You go off into the Himalayas, you never speak of your past. And you just take your body and use it to meditate and, and disassociate in all ways from it. Now, Yogananda, Swamis can modify this rule depending on their inner freedom. Part of the reason for that rule is quite simply that otherwise the familial warmth will draw you back into it and you'll be inclined to identify with your body and all that it represents. Sri Yukteswar was not like that. Yogananda himself was not like that because they were completely free. There was no need for them, as, as Swami Kriyananda says, they didn't have to hold the world at bay. They were not threatened by it. Swami wrote recently about Yogananda like that. He was so, so great in his realization. He said, most, even most great saints have to hold the world a little bit at bay, lest it come too close and tempt them away from their God realization. But Yogananda was so completely established in God consciousness that he was able to interact completely freely with the world as it was and it never touched him because it held no attraction to him. As we talk when we get to the levitating saint, who was well known because he'd renounced a, a, a massive family fortune in order to be a, 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 a sadhu, a renunciate. And then he laughed. He said, ah, he said, worldly people are the true renunciates because they trade an infinite treasure for a handful of little pieces of metal. He said, what security and happiness can this little handful of rupees give you compared to the realization of our own divine nature? Once we realize the divinity within us, it's not as if we have to push anything away. It's, it's just the same as, I mean, one doesn't have to um, sort of try not to be six years old. 
You know, you see little children. I was watching James Morrison's daughter, Ariana. James Morris, is that his name? I always want to say James, James Morrison, Morrison, Weatherby, George Dupree, but I think his name, you remember that song? Took good care of his mother, though he was only three. <laughs> Who is that? Anyway, James, is this James Morris? James Morrison. Anyway, his daughter Ariana, who is three, got blessed on Sunday. And when children, children demonstrate that positive energy causes energy to go up the spine, because when children are happy, they always go like that, you know. And when they get depressed, they go like this. <laughs> it's just totally, there's no space in the middle. So Ariana got blessed, and she just left the temple like this, you know, just totally like that. And even though sometimes we feel a little bit like that, you know, we don't sort of have to discipline ourselves. Most people, after they receive the blessing on Sunday, don't leave like a kangaroo. <laughs> But Ariana leaves like a kangaroo because she's only three and she just doesn't know what else to do with herself. That's how she does it, right? And so there's lots of things that when we're little, whether it's little in consciousness or little in age, are exceedingly attractive to us just because they're attractive to us. But we outgrow it and they're just not attractive anymore. We were having a conversation recently about hostess cupcakes. You know those little brown cupcakes with the little squiggle on the top? Some people in the conversation confess to still eating them. <laughs> For my particular little body, it would be similar to rat poison. I don't think I could eat it at all, and I'm not attracted to eat it. There's not a great deal of discipline involved in my not eating those. But apparently, even for people I like and respect, there's still a strong relationship <laughs> to those things, right? <laughs> but for me, I don't have to take a vow. You know, no more Hostess cupcakes. Because I just can't eat them. And, and it, it's, a, it's a trivial thing, but there's many other things that uh, we don't have any inclination to do. And, and we have to recognize that that um, understanding, that elevation of consciousness, that appreciation of a, a more and more refined level of joy, you know? Some people, maybe even some of you, you know, like discos or disco dancing or something like that. And, Others of us, I'll use myself as an example, I just can't, I can't bear it. It's not fun. But when I was in college, I really enjoyed it. I used to, every weekend, that's, I flunked out of college. Every weekend, I'd just go somewhere and dance. I had a wonderful one year at college, <laughs> you know, because that's what I did on Friday night. I'd just go find the party, and I'd just dance all night. Now, I, I just would never enjoy it. It's just not fun anymore. I don't, have to, I don't have to try to not do it. It doesn't attract me. There's no limit to that. That's what they're trying to tell us, the masters are trying to tell us. It's, it's impossible for us to conceive of it. Oh, renounce your family? You know, uh, renounce your comfort? Renounce oh, all these different things. It feels unbearable. But therefore, it's not our karma to do so. We, we have to do it at the point when the pleasure of having of it is more painful than leaving it behind. That when we just know, you know, I just don't want to touch this anymore. I had that thought very clearly. It has, doesn't hold for me, but I was thinking, you know, you, we come into this world, we live for a time, and then we die, and we just go on with our consciousness. Why do we accumulate so much? I don't just mean things, but relationships and involvements. And there was a, a woman in her 90s, and you know, she was living in a nursing home and just kept on living long after anybody in her family long after it made any sense. And she lived surrounded by all these pictures of her family. And everyone thought it was just so great that she lived surrounded by all these pictures of her family. And I thought, 
you know, at a certain point, you just got to jettison them because they don't go on once you die. Why are you sitting there at 90 just still staring at the fruits of this one body's experience? I mean, where is the growth in that? The tradition in India is that at the end of your life, you walk away from all of it. I mean, it's not necessarily followed, but the Vedic ideal in the um, Ramayana and the Mahabharata both, at a certain point, you know, the older kings, the older rulers would just, I've had it, and they would turn everything over to their younger offspring and they would take off all their fancy clothes and they would dress in simple garments and they just walk out into the forest and they would forget that they were ever kings or queens or anything. And they would spend their last years just meditating, just getting ready for it to all be taken away anyway and just being emotionally and psychologically and spiritually ready so that when death came there wouldn't be this clinging back to what had been but this willingness to go forward. It's going to get ripped away from you anyway. So it either goes, you know, either gets ripped out of your hands or else you put it down. And there's a, a state of uh, spiritual development called vairagya, which is a very wonderful word. And vairagya is the sort of natural disinclination for, for the things of this world. It sort of comes over one as you progress on the spiritual path. And so that, that it's not renunciation at that point, it's just you, one feels disinclined. And already all of us feel disinclined for a great many things that other people feel quite inclined toward. But I, I never have quite finished the sentence. We have to realize there is no boundary to that. And that's what Yogananda is expressing in his life. There's no boundary to it. He's born into this wealthy, wealthy, privileged life, but it doesn't attract him because it's a handful of rupees. And what he wants is the infinite bliss. And he sees all of these things as obstacles to that bliss rather than doorways to it. Karma is different, I have hastened to add, but his example still holds really for all of us. Um, any other comments or thoughts? Leave me. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. As long as it feels like renunciation, it's probably not time. There's a, a story in India uh, that's said to be true of a man whose wife came to him and said she was very concerned about her brother because every year he was renouncing something else and she was afraid that he was going to leave the family and the husband said to the wife he said no he'll never leave the family and he said why he said because that's not how renunciation happens and the wife said well how does it happen and he said like this and then as the story goes he took off all his garments except he took his dhoti and ripped a piece of it and tied it around his waist as a loincloth he bowed to his wife and said, from this day I regard you and all women as the Divine Mother. And he walked out and never came back. <laughs> because that's how it really happens. Just sort of, all of a sudden, it's just not yours anymore. And you just leave. It's not like you squeeze it out of you. It's like you, you develop bairagya. You can't, you can't hold it anymore. Sometimes God rips it away and then you realize you didn't want it. But ideally, you just open your hands and let it go. And even if you live in the world it is as he writes in the autobiography you know the householder path is the higher path provided that the householder lives unattached and uninvolved egoically with all that's happening so the inner renunciation is the true renunciation Rajasi Janakananda was a millionaire but he was also a fully realized master by the end of his life and he didn't renounce it he just transcended it so the example is there whether we change our lifestyle or not. All right.
Any comment? The word renunciate is a wonderful word. If it frightens you, don't worry about it now. But if it doesn't, enjoy it with your whole heart. Um, then Master, the next few chapters, he, or three chapters, four chapters, in fact, about great saints that he meets. You know, we, we didn't read about the Tiger Swami or the Perfume Swami, who were, were lesser souls, in a sense, than the ones that we read about now, which is um, the levitating saint, Baduri Mahashaya, and then uh, Master Mahashaya, M. And uh, the levitating saint who lived in Master's neighborhood, it's so charming that all these people are right there. And again, when you go to India, I'm thinking about this now because of David Van Mali being here, the mind has turned to India where we're going in a few months. But you, you do, you go to Master's house at 4 Garpar Road, and then you walk up the street a little bit, and there's the house where Tulsi Bosch, his boyhood friend, lived. And Master stayed in 1936. Then you walk around the corner, and you're at the house of the levitating saint. And there's still a, it's still set up with a hall there. It's sort of an ashram, and there's these little, uh, a couple of little temples with little statues of, of, of Baduri Mahashaya sitting there. And you can really feel it's very palpable, the, the spiritual power. And, and it's not unusual, really, to together a little bit, because um, great saints, there's more power together, you know, rather than being dissipated in lots of directions. So, and Bengal and Calcutta have always been uh, the heart of devotion in India in many ways, and so there's always a great devotional ferment in that part of the country. Um, and also, uh, as I've mentioned in the notes here, you know, the saints get better and better as we're getting up to Sri Uteshwar. It's sort of uh, the uh, Yogananda is luring us in to a deeper appreciation of what uh, a true spiritual person is. He gets our attention with someone like the Tiger Swami, which is a pretty stunning story, you know, and the perfume saint is sort of comical, but the levitating saint is a true one. And we have just the, the peculiarity again of the eccentricity of the divine. Here's this saint who never goes outdoors. And you're sort of like, why? And he just says, well, so that just because God likes things to be unexpected, lest we get it all put into a little box and um, think that we know how it's really going to be. Eccentricity absolutely abounds in India. It, it's, just, it, it's just so commonly accepted that people would be eccentric. I mean, uh, Devi Van Mali herself, uh, you notice she was wearing this lavender outfit. I and mean, this is not, this is something she just made up. You know, she's a devotee of Krishna and she considers this lavender purple color to be Krishna's color. And I don't know when in her life she just converted to this purple garment. She has three of them. I mean, she has three of them on her trip with her. It's all she wears every day. I was just thinking, what a wonderful idea. <laughs> you know? Just have the same thing and have three or four of it and just wear it every single day. She's not a swami. She's not a formal renunciate. She has children and grandchildren whom she adores. And she dresses every day in this lavender garment. And um, it's, a, it's a style that is recognizable, but nonetheless, it's her own. And, and she's a very highly educated woman from a very upper-class family, so I'm sure she wasn't raised like that, although she said her family was always Krishna Bhakta, devotees of Krishna. And, uh, but that kind of eccentricity is just taken for granted, especially if it's spiritually motivated in that culture, because the whole culture is just based on spirit. So Baduri Mahashaya, just sort of having this peculiar vow that he's taken, which is he never goes outside, 
from some uh, inner calling that this is really how he should be. Uh, what, what is there to see in the world, you would say? I'm sure he had such thoughts like, what, why do I need to go anywhere? The entire divine panorama is available within me. And it, it stands in contrast, too, in a very profound way to our compulsive need to go everywhere. You know, just run around and see things and do things. And he never left his home, except on holidays, and then he would come out to the sidewalk. You know, like, <laughs> this is a big day, I'm going to the sidewalk, right? <laughs> but think of the level. I mean, there's so much implied in that. You know, think of the level of inner calmness. And, and he wasn't, you know, a person can become small-minded from such things. Swamiji was talking about uh, that when he was in, living in India, he went to the Kumbha Mela. The Kumbha Mela is a, a gathering of saints and sadhus that happens, uh, the big one happens every 12 years, and all the sadhus come out of the mountains, and it's just a time. And these incredible traditions in India. Every 12 years, all these uh, saints and sadhus who are just hidden away, all just come to this holy spot, and they all just gather in front period of days or weeks, they're all there and people can come and have darshan and they can see one another then they all go back. And they've been doing this for centuries like this, nobody knows why. Now it's all so overpopulated and out of hand that it it's doesn't work quite as well, but nonetheless they still do it and it's still there. Um, I mean, it's the overpopulation of India is warping the culture and the disintegration of Kali Yuga is warping the culture. But nonetheless the traditions are holding and they'll they'll still be there after the whole, after Kali Yuga is gone. Um, but Swamiji was talking about, he said, that you see, you'd see sadhus who do many strange things, like you see some that like a promise to like hold a hand in the air, or, and then just for years of their life, they'll just do this tapasya of just holding one hand in the air, or, or sadhus who never lie down or sit, but just stand or lean. And Swami was talking about some, he said, so many of the time you see people who've done things like that and their bodies have become grotesque from the uh, unnaturalness of it. And then Swami talked about one, one, he was talking about the sadhus who perhaps never lie down. Sometimes their legs become swollen and so on from just the unnaturalness of it. But then Swami talked about one sadhu that he saw there who was following one of those extreme practices and Many of his companions were uh, somewhat grotesque from it, but he said he was shining and beautiful and perfectly formed, and even his body hadn't been affected. It was, for him, it was the right sadhana. And you could see that it had uh, in, given him enlightenment. Very peculiar. And India sort of does that to you, and, and Master's trying to do it to us with this book, just trying to get us into a culture whose value system is completely different. You have to think not in terms of the present poverty and aberration of India. But even still, 50 years ago, which was not nearly as bad as now, Yogananda describes in the very first sentence, very first paragraph, these men of God realization are India's sole remaining wealth, is what he said. Later editions say only true wealth. But Yogananda was very blunt. He said sole remaining wealth. He didn't, they toned it down later, but he didn't tone it down. So we have Baduri Mahashaya who sits upstairs and just is this saint and has somebody at the door to keep most people away because, as he says, saintliness is disconcerting. Just the simple truth is not what most people want to hear. So for their protection, I don't let them come. 
You know, it's a very, it's just a very interesting statement. We all think, oh, we should be, you know, have the right to be by masters and with saints, and why weren't we incarnated with Yogananda and so on? Well, maybe not, maybe might not have been such a good idea for us. You know, Baduri Mahashaya held himself away from many people because the simple truth that he would speak bluntly was too much. Sri Yukteswar did not cultivate many disciples. He was too blunt spoken for most. They, they found his words too caustic. They didn't find them healing. They found it too difficult for him. But Yogananda, of course, saw through the facade. And that was sort of the sweetness of his relationship with Abhuduri Mahashaya was that he himself was so focused on the divine reality that they could entirely connect. And of course, Yogananda is just a boy. But he was not a boy on any spiritual level at all, and their um, souls attuned with each other. And, and interestingly, um, Yogananda explains in several, several different ways in this chapter about how he really liked this man's sense of humor and would laugh all the time, and that it was a little disconcerting to the other disciples. And you, you just, it's just a very small statement, but it's also a, a kind of a sign, number one, that he was really in tune with the saint, and number two, that Master just responded in whatever way he wanted to respond. You know, he, he just, it's a very little thing, but he didn't have any regard either for what small-minded people thought of him. He just responded and they didn't like it, but that didn't matter because his relationship was just uh, with the levitating saint here. Um, and then he starts, Master starts bringing in, you know, this saint talks about Westerners and here this is, like when? Before 1920. And Vaduri Mahashaya is corresponding with people in the West about yoga and just sort of introducing the energy. You have to appreciate that the kind of um, divine mission that Yogananda brought to America required a great deal of preparing of the soil. And so Vaduri Mahashaya was not really, quote, of, our, of this line. He wasn't Yogananda's guru, but yet he was also just sort of planting the seeds in the West, getting ready for this movement of self-realization to come. I actually had a, a thought not too long ago that, um, that I wonder to what extent this line of teachers, this line of gurus was involved in the actual founding of America. You know, which of the founding fathers or may have been uh, saints related to this path for this reason, that um, you have, to, if you think in these very long cycles, I mean, we're t talking in terms of centuries, um, that this, the planet is going through this great shift. Swamiji talks in, autobiography, in his autobiography, The Path, and, and Yogananda in, uh, speaks of it too in many different ways in here. The extent to which the world is really run by the vision of the masters. It, it's, it's a very interesting and important idea to sort of contemplate. I mean, like, who and what is really in charge? We can even say that God is in charge, but you have to appreciate that even the divine works through instruments. It's not as if God is sort of abstractly in charge and then just things just sort of happen. It's the power of the divine comes through human consciousness, and human consciousness receives that and acts on it and manifests it in, in a human way. And so you, you, you have apparent um, individuals of influence, and then you have invisible influences that are, are nonetheless still completely there. Babaji lives even now in the Himalayas and is, has promised to keep his physical form throughout this age and is responsible 
with Jesus for the spiritual evolution east and west. I mean, those are statements that Yogananda makes, and we read them, and we say, uh-huh, you know. But really, just stop for a minute and think about what that really, really means, about sort of the forces that are at play. And then we talk about being in tune and trying to be receptive to the Guru's will, and, and we pray, we have all these prayers, prayers that we say over and over, you know, help me make me an instrument of your divine consciousness. Well, what do you think that really means? That really means to be an instrument of divine consciousness. And it's not just, oh, now that I'm about to meditate. It's every decision that we make, every action that we take, where, what we, where we work, what kind of work we do, what we do when we're working, where we live, how we, just everything about us. Where do the, where does the ideas come from? Where do the ideas come from? Well, they either come right out of our subconscious or they come in some sense out of our superconscious in relation to the infinite. And how does the infinite reach us? Through these masters. Yogananda said shocking, startling things like it was he who put the thought into President Truman's mind to defend uh, Korea, in Korea, to go into the Korean War because Yogananda has always said explicitly that communism is the greatest threat that, that the world faces at this time because of its atheism. The atheism represented by communism is a profound and terrible threat to the um, future of, of this world. And so he, Yogananda said it was he who put the thought into Yogananda's mind to enter the Korean War to stop the spread of communism because if it had gone through Korea it would have just proliferated throughout um, that whole part of the world. I mean, for those people who are pacifists or who have sort of small ideas of history, it's, it's, it's like you don't quite know what to do with that. And, and Master also said that it was the, the masters of India who put it into Hitler's mind to divide his forces between Europe and Russia. So he, he ended up fighting the war on two fronts. And it was because he was divided and because so much of his energy was in Russia that Hitler was able to be defeated. And from a military point of view, apparently, I don't, don't study these things, it was a very stupid decision and, and uncharacteristic of him. But Yogananda said the masters of India put the thought in his mind and, and persuaded him that it was a good idea, and so he acted on it. And you think, wow, you know, what is, what is really actually happening here? So in that context, Yogananda has said that India and America are going to be are the leading forces for, the, for Dwapara Yuga, and that ultimately, in fact, Yogananda even talked about great wars of many different combinations that will ultimately end up with India and America being allies. India is far more allied with Russia than it is now with America, but the balance is shifting a little bit. Bill Clinton did a lot to do, to do that. Bill Clinton was, the, was just a phenomenal success in India. We hear from all our Indian friends. He did a lot to, to increase pro-American feeling in India. You never know <laughs> who can be used for what. But anyway, um, but in that context, I started thinking, because also because you see, and I think I talked a little about this last week, India, America is unique, has this unique ability. I was just, somebody was talking about the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I mean, at the time that those words were written, those, that, was, that was an extraordinary revelation to say it's self-evident that all men are created equal. It was not at all self-evident. I mean, it was a society in which the aristocrats were people and everybody else wasn't, you know, and the king was something and everybody else wasn't. 
And the American people said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and have the same right to the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. I mean, we, we can barely comprehend what a, a, an extraordinary, bold, and daring experiment America was and is. Now that we've just sort of gotten used to it and become actually quite cynical and disrespectful of it, we don't realize that. But it occurred to me, and I was asking Swami about it, that since America had such a, has such a profound role to play, I mean, Yogananda came, the, the, all these avatars were all working up to sending Yogananda to Los Angeles. I mean, that's really something when you think about it, right? Yeah, it's quite something. To America, to California, to Los Angeles. And Yogananda said great saints and sages had lived on that soil, and it was holy soil, Los Angeles. I think some of them lived in Northern California, too, but anyway. But nonetheless, um, so I was saying to Swamiji, I said, well, if America had such a role to play, and just tuning in slightly to what a revolution it was, it said the masters must have been involved. And Swami just said, well, yes, of course, that's true. And I mean, in 300 years, 200 years is nothing in the time span that we're talking about. You know, and, and Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, particularly among presidents, were ec- extraordinarily known for their spiritual power and their spiritual intuition. They were very exceptional men, both of them, and Washington founded it and Lincoln saved it. Um, so you have just this whole picture, and it's just like this little thread of, of Baduri Mahashaya saying, oh, I get lots of letters from the West, you know, just sort of dropping the hint, Yogananda says that someday he's going to be part of that. And again, Swami uh, Yogananda writes, I wonder how many of these saints knew that I would someday write their story up for this book. And again, you, we sort of sit here. We have this book, Autobiography of the Yogi, is just so well known. If you go to any conference of, uh, I, we don't use the word New Age that much anymore, but forward-thinking people, you say, how many of you have read Autobiography of the Yogi? I mean, You'll have a room, 500 people, 457 of them will all have read Autobiography of the Yogi. And people just read this all the time. But it, it only was written some 50 years ago. And, and it's interesting to, to read it with the consciousness that it was written. Even in Yogananda's life, he came in 1920, and he didn't publish this until 1948. So, 46. So most of his... Uh, uh, Swami came in 1948. I got the dates mixed up. So most of his disciples didn't know these stories about his early life or anything, the whole story of it. So it's fascinating to think of it that way. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and go to the last, most wonderful chapter. Let's take ten. Your questions before we go on to Master Mahashaya? Master Mahashaya is such a, uh, just such a thrilling character in this story. any of you who've read anything about Sri Ramakrishna, the whole gospel of Sri Ramakrishna was written by M, and it's the same man. Um, I remember how excited I was. I was studying Sri Ramakrishna's teaching before I read Autobiography of a Yogi, and I can just still remember somehow the fact that, that, that he was in both books. It's just so thrilling to me. And, I mean, uh, Master Mahashaya is one of the most significant characters in the whole drama of Ramakrishna's life because as M he would go to Ramakrishna's um, place where he lived outside of Calcutta where Yogananda tells the story of how they went out to Dakineshwar to the Kali temple and Sri Ramakrishna was one of the great masters of 
of our times also uh, said by his disciples to be an avatar and most probably was. I mean, what I mean to say is I have no reason to say otherwise. Um, and uh, Yogananda revered him highly. And he, was, he also lived about the same period of time. He died in the late, like, 1880s, I think, somewhere in there. And uh, uh, he spent most of his life as the pujari, as the priest, at this temple located outside of Calcutta in a suburb called Dakinishwar. And he was the pujari, that means the priest who was in charge. It was his job. He was a Brahmin priest and he was hired to be in charge of the worship and the care of Kali, Divine Mother is Kali. And there's this beautiful, he talks about this nine, nine towers in this beautiful big temple where the image of Kali was, where Ramakrishna took care of the image. And Ramakrishna lived in a little room on the temple ground. And uh, his wife, Sarada Devi, Ramakrishna had a wife named the Holy Mother, and she lived in the little building right next to where Ramakrishna lived. And Ramakrishna was there for many years and his disciples all would come and sit in the room and Ramakrishna would instruct them. And, um, and the holy, it's very, very holy ground. It's one of the most holy places in the world where Ramakrishna lived, that temple ground. And of course it's part of our India pilgrimage so I have an image in my mind exactly as I describe all of this. And Master uh, Mahashaya M would go because he lived in Calcutta and he would go as often as he could which was very often to Ramakrishna's room and he would faithfully record everything that Ramakrishna said and that is the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna which is this great big book like this which is just you know word who was there what they said what the master said just in a very just page after page after page and so a great deal of the um, reality of Ramakrishna was created by that by, by the book that M wrote. He just that's why he just put M because he was too humble to put any more than that on the name of it. So he was a, a Mahashaya, Master Mahashaya was a great spiritual figure, a towering spiritual figure. And the the intersection between himself and Yogananda is, is particularly dear. Uh, Yogananda had a great affection for Ramakrishna. And Ramakrishna might figure more prominently in our situation here. There was a strange karma associated with that, which is that um, the Ramakrishna order also sent Indian swamis to America, to many cities, including Southern California. Swami Vivekananda came coming, I think, in 1904. Um, 1893, he came to America. He died in 1904. I get, I get everything all mixed up came in 1893, but he, he was one of the first, not the first, but one of the first great swamis to touch America, but he just traveled and then left. But the Indian swamis from the Ramakrishna order who were in Southern California um, had a certain amount of uh, discomfort with Yogananda because Yogananda uh, overshadowed them. And it became a little awkward for Yogananda to incorporate Ramakrishna too much into his own mission. So it was held a little bit more at bay than it might have been otherwise. You know, shrines to him and so on. So it, it, it's sort of an interesting part of it. But nonetheless, the, the degree of devotion and the importance that uh, Master Mahashaya played in Yogananda's life is an indication of the, um, the unity of the two paths. And Ramakrishna also 
offered the same message that Yogananda offered, which is saying that all this apparent separation between spiritual teachings is all just delusion. Ramakrishna manifested it in a very dramatic way because he actually personally practiced all these different teachings. He, be, he was a Christian, he was a, 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 a female Radha devotee of um, Krishna, he was a Shivite, he practiced Tantra Yoga, he uh, became Hanuman the monkey worshipping uh, Rama, I mean literally. He, when he was Radha, Ramakrishna became so feminine he dressed in feminine clothes, he would, he would be with the women in their private quarters and he, they just, nobody felt that he was a man, he was just a woman. And he experienced in each of these paths the supreme realization of God and demonstrated through his own practice of the sadhana that they were all true. And when he was Hanuman, the, the monkey devotee, he tied his dhoti like a tail, he lived on bananas and he spent a lot of time in the trees. I mean, he was, Ramakrishna was extreme. Until he was recognized as a saint, they thought he was a lunatic. But, you know, after time, they began to realize that he was mad with God and not merely mad. Um, so, um, the, the power of Master Mahashaya that just comes through and the degree to which Yogananda reveres him, you know, I never, I never thought I would bow to anyone and I fall at the feet of this man. And, and he also, you know, speaks to Master Mahashaya as if Master Mahashaya might be his guru. And it's not, he, um, he makes it seem like it wasn't clear. And that uh, Master Mahashaya had to say, no, I'm not, I'm not your teacher. But in fact, Master Mahashaya gave him divine experiences and interceded with him with the Divine Mother. I mean, he, he played the role of Guru in the sense that it's through the Guru's grace that our own inner consciousness opens. Even later when Yogananda comes to Sri Yukteswar, all his efforts to meditate don't bring him divine realization until his master touches him. And even though we think of master as sort of being the, the source of, of everything, in master's own life, he always gave the credit to Sri Yukteswar. And Swamiji even tells a peculiar story of Yogananda talking about, um, in some situation, I can't remember the details, maybe it was some dark force that was coming in, the Master himself was helpless until he prayed to Sri Yukteswar. And then when Master prayed to his own guru, then the power came into him. And Yogananda himself would always give the credit to the, to the Masters behind him. And, and it's just, uh, even when the disciple becomes as great as the Master, the disciple never ceases to be grateful to the, the one who opened the door, the, the portals to divine consciousness. And so he talks about Master Mahashaya as the the, the humblest man he ever knew. And these are very strong words. Just the humblest, the, the incarnation of humility. And so humble was he that he never even considered his thoughts his own. That even whatever he would think or say, he would always end by saying, or so my master told me. You know, just always appreciating that everything about who he was, he didn't, own, he didn't have an ego to own it. He was just, as I was saying earlier, about we all pray to be instruments and attuned and then we see it manifested in this great soul that whatever whatever understanding he had he always just laid it at the feet of his master or so my master told me and you know master Mahashaya's sadhana had been to just write down those thoughts year after year and it's so dear when he describes him as you know uh, he was a schoolmaster 
he, uh, he trained young boys and, and trained them entirely through the power of his divine realization and his divine love. And what a great gift it would be to uh, be one of his students. And just the paradox, the, the interestingness that Master Mahashaya took over the very house that Yogananda's family had been in at one point, in 50 Amherst Street, which is a very large house. It was, we've seen it's a very big house. And after Yogananda's family moved out, then Master Mahashaya moved in. So again, you have these sort of interweaving trails. And you also, again, realize the, um, the, the way in which we see all these things as separate and that how they really come together, that the, the movement that Ramakrishna helped begin is the same movement that Yogananda has carried on, this breaking down of sectarian boundaries and this breaking down of the thought um, that there's only my way and there's no other way. Swamiji laughs and says, you know, the, um, the Ramakrishna order has fallen prey to a certain extent to the same thing that's happened to SRF, which is um, some of the spirit has been uh, changed by too institutional an approach and um, some Ramakrishna's disciples, the ones who are deluded, not the real ones, say, well, you know, uh, Ramakrishna said that all paths were the same, but he was the greatest because he was the one who said it first. <laughs> You have Master Mahashaya's devotion to Divine Mother and how he allowed Divine Mother to run even the smallest things. And you have that exceedingly touching scene where they were together and the very unpleasant man came and was just making their time together, spoiling their time together because he was talking so much and he was so obnoxious. I was going to sneeze. I don't want to sneeze into a, an amplifier. I think it, the danger is past. Okay. I ended inadvertently a long meditation by sneezing into an open mic once. Nearly just blew karma out of everyone's spine. <laughs> I've been silent for a really long time and then I sneezed into my microphone. So I'm real sensitive about that. Even unamplified, my sneeze is impressive. I amplified it. it. It was a moment to remember. Um, but the, the touching way in which Master Mahashaya in his humility you know, this is, this is also a picture of what true humility is. He wasn't so humble that he didn't think God didn't care about him. You know, in fact, he was so humble that he was just like a child and he knew that God would care about him. You, you understand what I mean? So often we think that humility really means that we don't value ourselves. That's not true. Humility is really seeing ourselves exactly as we are. And he saw himself as a little child in Divine Mother's world. And so there's something very unpleasant was happening to them, which is that this man was being so obnoxious, and there they were having such a blissful time, and this obnoxious man was there. Of course, the Master exaggerates the story. But Ma Master Mahashaya says, I've spoken to Divine Mother about it. He's going to think of something that he has to do. And they reach, you know, Master tells the dramatic story of how he desperately looked for his liberation, you know, at the corner and the red house, and then the obnoxious man goes away. But this is just Master Mahashaya moving through the world, holding Divine Mother's hand, with the calm assumption that whatever he wants, she wants. And the same story again repeats itself when they go in to see the bioscopes, and they're trapped in the dull college lecture. Well, Divine Mother has taken mercy on us, and the lights are going to go out about now. <laughs> and then they walk out, and then the lights mysteriously come on. You know, Divine Mother is just holding his hand, just as he starts the whole chapter by 
um, Master Mahashaya says to, to, to Master, you know, just a moment, I'm conversing with my Divine Mother, don't interrupt me. And Master just goes into a despair because right in front of him, someone is having the experience of the Divine Mother and he's not able to tune into it. And so Master Mahashaya intercedes for him. And again, you have this pattern which is always there that God works through instruments. Even for someone of, of the consciousness of Yogananda, the way he plays out his lila is that he finds these great souls and has this great devotion and receptivity to them. And so he's showing us how, as I was saying last week, how you get back through the wall to the spirit on the other side by finding great souls and having great devotion to them. Yogananda didn't need any of this, but this is the lila. This is the um, limitation he accepted, is that in his limited role as a human being, he had to play the game of what devotees have to do, which is you, you, you draw your grace by your reverence and respect and devotion to the one who has the power to give it to you. And so we have this just such a, a moving story of, of the way he, he interacted uh, with Master Mahashaya in this way. Um, oh, and then you have that, just that little tiny scene of Yogananda hearing, uh, I think it was, it was near Howrah Station, and he hears um, these very, very undevotional people chanting. And um, you have to be in India to really appreciate how really awful it can be, just unspeakably awful. I know once we went to a satsang of an Indian teacher in the area, and um, David and I both said, afterwards someone asked, what was it like? I said, oh, it was so wonderfully Indian. The microphones were all too loud, and they were squeaking all the time, and the chanting was distorted, and it was just so much like being in India. I mean, it was just, just nothing works quite properly. And, but there, there are two things about it that I loved. One was, there you are at the railroad station, and there's just a group of people chanting, and it's just sort of the given, because maybe there were pilgrims going off somewhere. I mean, think about BART, or California Avenue. You know, I mean, we do, when we're on pilgrimage, even when we leave, we sit down in the airport just sort of to get people trained and not paying attention to what's going on. But it's not common. But in India, it's perfectly common. As I say, maybe they were all getting on a train to go to a pilgrimage spot somewhere, who knows, and they were just doing what they were doing. But they were raucous. And in Yogananda's mind, this little bit of judgment starts coming. You know, that, that we divide the world up into what we accept and our likes and dislikes. And immediately, Master Mahashaya comes to him. And in this way, also, you see him behaving like the guru. He was supervising his consciousness. And, you know, the first thing he says is, don't judge, don't think about it. I mean, he doesn't say those words, but he just says, isn't it sweet to hear them chanting God's name, no matter how they chant it, but that they should even do it. Isn't that a thrill to all of us? And this is the humility. Here's this man has such a great level of realization himself, but the very greatness of his realization makes him appreciative like a child. And he, he looks at the world as Divine Mother looks at it. They're all my children. And even if they call me raucously and unpleasantly, I'm so glad they're calling me. You know, that's all that matters to the mother. So this chapter is one that one can just go back to over and over again just to sort of feel um, the sweet energy that's coming out of it. And Master's own guru, Sri Yukteswar, was much more stern. And just even as Mahashaya himself said, I believe, or it was Baduri Mahashaya who said, your guru will forge the fires of your devotion in the fires of wisdom, or strengthen your devotion through the fire of wisdom. 
But for Mahashaya, Master Mahashaya, it was more like they were of the same spirit. And we have, again, this whole wonderful picture of the devotion to Divine Mother. And it, it even goes to the Kali Temple, was what we often call it in, in Dakinashwar, where uh, Ramakrishna, too, was this great devotee of the Mother. His whole devotion was to Divine Mother. So Yogananda is also setting the stage uh, because he, he's not that explicit through this book, but Master Mahashaya and Ramakrishna are another sort of directional sign. You know, this is the way we should be looking. This is really where the power of this age is going to come from. So um, that's probably my whole story. Is there a comment or a thought before a question before we let it go? All right, then. That will be tonight. That's it. Thank you for coming. Next week we read what? Um, I Meet My Master, chapter 10 and 11.